It is good to worship with you, brothers and sisters. Uh, two items I'd bring to your, to ten, uh, to your attention. Um, Friday, this upcoming Friday, we have a, a men's event from 6 to 8 p.m. Axe throwing, burgers, brats, uh, really holy spiritual items. And uh, so, some of you may remember our last men's event in February. We had a cornhole tournament uh, in which I lost to Dave Bostrom, so I, I shaved my head in response to that. So if uh, my aim is for Dave to show up next week with his head shaved as I, I beat him, be in prayer for that. Uh, but no personal invitation. If you are a gentleman and you want to come and throw axes, you want to bring your kids uh, and eat some food and hang out, it's a great opportunity to do that. So please uh, invite people, make it uh, a priority. Second item, uh, we are finishing the book of James today. And like when we finish Galatians, I'm tempted just to turn back around and start all over in the book of James, because there's just there's so much that we could say more. But starting next week, we're going to be in a series on the purpose of the church, uh, looking at the church in different portraits uh, throughout the scripture. So uh, be in prayer for that, and uh, I, I trust that God will encourage us through it. Well, um, if you haven't already, grab a copy of the scriptures and turn to James chapter 5. And this morning, we do conclude our series in the book of James, a series that we've called Faith in Action. And I trust that James has proved to be a faithful pastor to each of us. We've considered through James, through this letter, through five chapters, a passionate plea to not be Christians who simply collect information, but to be faithful followers of Christ who live in a way where our thoughts our words and our actions, well, they, they demonstrate the faith that we say we profess. We've been given several commands in the book of James. Word for word, you'll find more commands in James than any New Testament letter. But don't get it twisted. James is not interested in you and I being moral people. He's not interested in you earning your way to God. He doesn't prescribe that you and I impress him or others with holy living. And he doesn't call us to simply shape up in a few areas of our life. But rather, the letter of James is a call to action to those of us who, as in James 1.18, have been brought forth of his own will by the word. Our letter, the James here, has is, is been a call to action to those of us like Abraham in James 2.23 that have believed God and it was counted to us as righteousness. Just as Paul informed us again and again and again in our study in Galatians, we also see it in James. Jesus is enough. Jesus has died and rose again. Jesus has rescued us from sin and self, and Jesus has given us new hearts. Jesus is the one in whom we follow. We receive James's commands on the basis of a relationship with God, not to initiate a relationship with God. Perhaps, like me, your life is marked at times by significant doubt, fear, boredom, frustration, and a living for self. <laughs> but, but we've been reminded in James 4, he, he gives more grace. 
So no matter who you are, where you've been, what you're wrestling with, there is great grace for you in the gospel of Christ. He gives more grace. And in God's grace, he's given us commands and laws and requirements to follow. Not to earn our way, but to guide our way. Not to make us cookie-cutter Christians, but to uniquely lead each one of us in the life that he's given us. His, and in his grace, he's given us commands and instruction not to restrict your joy, but to produce in you lasting joy. This morning in our text, our, our main idea, our main call to action is this. Faithful followers of Christ, pray. We don't talk about prayer. We don't think it's a good idea. We don't mentally affirm to it, but do nothing. Faithful followers of Christ pray. And this makes sense off the heels of our patience and suffering that we considered last week in James 5. And it also makes sense in light of the bookends of the chapters of James. James 1 starts with praying in the midst of trials and temptations. And James 5 ends with prayer in the midst of suffering. So would you read with me, please, verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And, and if, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. <laughs> Elijah! Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, there is much that has been said and written regarding prayer, but James kindly provides us Two considerations as we seek, you and I, Lakewood Church, as we seek to take action and to actually be people who pray. Well, the first item we would consider is the need of prayer. And this is directly verses 13 and 14. James, he asks three questions that broadly cover three time frames when we should pray. Are you suffering? Cheerful? Sick? <laughs> okay, I got you. Pray. And it's a very Jewish shorthand way of saying whatever your condition, whatever the circumstance, we should take it to God in prayer. 
And you might think this is an odd thing to hear. Well, of course Christians pray. Of course. We've, uh, you know, we, we have to ask why James would bother writing to a bunch of first century Christians who've been scattered, dispersed, and, and are suffering. Well, of course they are praying. Of course we are praying. But were they? Are we? The command to pray is hidden a little bit in our English translations. Many of us have a translation that says, let us pray. It's almost as if it's an invitation. Uh, A few translations are a little more literal. And the phrase would read something like, you should pray or you must pray. Stating it that way, not as some past event, not something you did once back then, but a presence right now command. James implies that prayer should be an element of our daily life. Like, you need it, like, right now, he's saying. And what might be the reason that the need for prayer is diminished in our minds? I mean, I'm not the only one, right? Many of us, uh, our timing of prayer is infrequent or contrary to what James commands faithful followers of Christ here in these verses. But why? Here's how one pastor and professor comments on these verses. He says, While many believers may be tempted to react to difficulties with grumbling, anger, or discouragement, James reminds us there is one clear and proper Christian response to circumstances. Prayer. Prayer. And let's be honest for a moment, we don't like that. Maybe we affirm those words on a Sunday morning because we're all kind of a religious people in here, right? But the reality is when circumstances hit me on a Monday morning, I don't necessarily feel like the Christian response is to first pray. Do I really believe that the Christian response to anything is a time and a need of prayer? Kids? Teenagers? When your heart feels dull, or your parents misunderstand and don't hear you? Do you need to pray? Yes. Adults, when you are able to fight for joy in the midst of a terrible week, and and there's some cheerfulness in you, do you need to sing praises and pray to God? James says yes. When we suffer fractured relationships, do we need to pray? Yes. When sickness comes and we are weak, do we need to press into the body and pray? Yeah. When you suffer personal hurt, do you need to pray? James says yes. And a response to all of this could be, well, isn't there a time to do something? You Christians, you can't just sit around all day and pray in your circles, you know. And I think there is a measure of truth to that objection. But if you've been with us in James, you know James is a man of action who calls us to a faith in action. It's not that we don't act, but it's rather we always need to pray. 
It's always the right time to first pray over a matter. I've, I've said this before, and I think James would agree with me. If we assign more power to our planning and scheming and fixing than we do to our prayers, and I think Paul Tripp says something like that, but, but if we assign more power to our planning, our scheming, and our fixing than we do to prayer, we're not only in trouble, we're sinning. Because we're in that moment proclaiming self-sufficiency. We're in that moment functioning as though we don't need God. The old monk, Martin Luther, I think he summed up James' point well. He said, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I've never thought that. Do we believe and think and act as Luther and James did? Probably not as much as we should. But we also need to pray because we naturally think that James and the Scriptures would have us pray. We think the Scriptures would encourage us to pray and to petition God to remove the trial. God, I hurt. Get rid of this trial. But James... His concern and what he deals with in trials elsewhere in, in James 1 and in James 5 is that we are to endure suffering. He encourages believers to endure suffering with a right spirit and with a divine perspective. Presumably then, the prayer that he encourages here, what we really need is not just for physical healing, but spiritual strength to endure our trials and joys with a godly spirit. We need prayer. And, you know, we, we might affirm that. And, you know, even non-believers affirm this. I can't tell you how many times someone who's not a Christian, someone who's not religious, they'll find out that I'm a pastor. And they'll say, Pastor, will you, will you pray for me? Like, there, there, there's something in us, like, I need something. I can't manufacture on my own. I have limited ability in this life to impact not only myself and the heart that I see, but my relationships and my, my circumstances. Empirically, we know, believer and non-believer, that we need someone outside of ourselves. A need for prayer. But there's not just a need for prayer. There's the results of prayer in verses 15 and 16. And let me just say, this is what you came here for this morning, by the way. You know, we might all readily admit, I need prayer, I should pray more. But the results, this is really why we came, I think. Tell me, James, tell me whether this prayer business actually does anything. Tell me, James, if God actually hears and acts on my behalf. Tell me I'm not just wasting my time. We may not voice these concerns, but I imagine like me, you think them. And James informs us off the heels of commanding us to pray in every circumstances because we need it. He says that prayer actually does something. Well, depending on how you cut it up, I think there seems to be three results that James points us to in the following verses. The first is the results 
of results in saving. So I get this directly from verse 15. Look again. It says, the prayer of faith will save or make well the one who is sick. Some of us squirm a little bit as we read this verse because of the unbiblical uses and abuses of this verse. There are those who will say that your prayers will save someone spiritually, whether they're alive or they've passed on. If you pray, you'll send them to heaven. There are others who will use this verse to say if you have enough faith. If you have enough faith, all your physical ailments will be healed. For $29.99, send in your deposit and you'll be healed. So if you have enough faith, cancer, disease, lame legs, you'll be, you'll be raised. And if God doesn't answer your prayer while well, it's your fault, you, you didn't have enough faith. Well, setting aside the abuses of this verse, what is James really saying here? Whether it's your personal prayer or your calling of the elders of your local church to pray, James says, petitions to God in prayer will save the sick. You may have a translation that says, make the sick person well. And the word literally is will save. It's the same word that we find in Matthew chapter 9 uh, with Jesus. There's this bleeding woman and, uh, who touched the fringe of Jesus' garment. And immediately, the text says in Matthew 9, she was made well. She was saved. She was physically healed. So physical healing, or, or rather uh, saving, doesn't necessarily always mean spiritually or eternally. Let, let me give you a better contemporary example. When I found out this past week that the Green Bay Packers were losing many of their good players and one of them joined the Vikings, that saved me. That saved me. Hallelujah. I mean, no, no, not, not eternally, but it, but it physically made me well. Like I walked a little bit lighter that day going, yeah. And, and Lord willing, it will save me come the fall and football season. So when we read saving, it doesn't necessarily mean eternal salvation, but, but James is saying there, there's a physical aspect. If you pray, it will save and make someone physically well. But okay, let's get back to the point. James is saying that when we are in need, when we pray in faith, the sick will be saved, made well, and the Lord will raise him up. We could make a spiritual application here, but... James is clearly talking about the physical. He's saying prayer does things. But honestly, at least in my mind, I don't know about your mind, it creates more questions. What about when I pray for my spouse and child and they never recover? What about like ASAP in Psalm 73, I wake up every morning and I hurt and God doesn't seem to be answering those prayers of faith. What about Jesus' promise in John 14? If you ask anything in my name, anything, I will do it, he says. Really? What about Paul's prayers for the thorn in the flesh to be removed? What about many of us who've been in the midst of circumstance and have pleaded for a sign, for some kind of saving, some kind of work? The results of prayer? 
many of us have scars of unanswered prayer. But Lakewood, we are called to trust, pray, and to live in the tension of these commands. We're commanded to pray in faith. We're told that God supernaturally puts his hand into this world and he can change things. James told us in chapter 4, we have not because we ask not. Yet, yet, we also understand that the scriptures tell us that prayer is an act of dependence. God is not someone that we provide a formula to to get what we need or want. God is not a genie in a bottle. If we manipulate it the right way, he will do our bidding. But rather, we pray boldly asking for healing, for saving, and we trust in the good character and kindness of God who gives us what he sees as best. Sickness, pain, death may not feel best, but we trust his wise, sovereign planning for our life. His aim is our heart, our joy, and his glory. God help us to faithfully pray in this tension. God help us to boldly ask for healing, for saving, believing he will hear us, believing he will act, and he will make people well as he sees fit. But it's not just that we see results in, in the saving. We see results also in forgiveness. I get this directly from the end of verse 15. Look again. He says, and if, condition, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. We are a people of extremes. I mean, I'm not asking, I'm telling you, like, we're people of extremes. And in Jesus's day, it was common for people to over-spiritualize the connection between suffering and sin. John 9 is a good example. The disciples and Jesus, they come alongside a, a man born blind. And the question was, well, Jesus, who, whose sin is responsible for his blindness? They're the same guys. If their lawnmower broke or the car broke down, they would say, oh, must have sinned earlier today. God punished me. There was this over-spiritualization, this tight, tight connection between sin and suffering. Well, in our day, we tend to fall on the other extreme. And we de-spiritualize the significance and the connection between sin and suffering. We don't think our suffering has anything to do with sin. Well, maybe in some cases we do. If someone has cirrhosis of the liver because they were a drunk, we connect sin and suffering. If someone has a sexually transmitted disease because of an unbiblical sexual choice, we connect sin and suffering. Well, Paul, he warned the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians that some were sick and dying because of their sin of abusing the Lord's Supper. James reminds us that there is some connection between suffering and sickness, or suffering and sin, rather. And the prayers for a sick person may not simply raise them up physically, but it may be a physical, tangible 
means for them to consider their own spiritual life and to find forgiveness in the message of Christ. Therefore, James continues in verse 16, God help us to obey the command to confess to one another, to keep short accounts. Lakewood, keep short accounts in your marriage, with your children, with your friends and your co-workers. We're we're commanded to keep short, short accounts and to confess to one another to pray for one another, that God would protect us and heal us from sickness and sin in our life. And that we would know the forgiveness found in Christ. God will often, I mean, hasn't he in your life? God will often use suffering and physical healing in our life, in anyone's life, as a turning moment as they recognize their need for forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus. So the results of prayer are are in saving, in forgiveness. And third here, I want us to look at the results of prayer. We see the results in effect. It's a weird way to say it, but I say it that way because it's a very literal and wooden translation of the end of verse 16. Look at the end of verse 16. You could read it, much ability, prayer of the righteous man is affecting. Well, that sounds like Yoda. So, I mean, our English translations, I mean, they're helpful in smoothing it out. James's point is that there are results in prayer. There's an effect of prayer. It's not just a theory. It's not just for pretend. It's not something we do because it's a cute Christian thing before or after a meal or before bedtime. But we, in In reality, we we believe that prayers have an effect. And I'd like us to, to, to just encourage us and have us wrestle with one question from the end of verse 16. Look at 16 again. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. Hmm. Who's the righteous man? In verse 16, what, what one of us could boldly come and say that we're righteous and therefore in our righteousness we pray. And when we pray, well, because I'm so righteous, there's results and effect and power. Which one of us could say that? Scripture tells us something pretty countercultural. We, you and I, are not righteous Paul says this in Romans 3, no one's righteous, not one. And, you know, I hate to break it to you, but Christians, I mean, someone had to tell you, Christian, you are not righteous. But here's a fancy word for you. We are imputed the righteousness of Christ. So rather, as we trust in Jesus, as we are changed by him in faith, as we are given new hearts in the gospel, the righteous life of Jesus is credited to our account. It's a transaction. All right, kids, you you into Bitcoin a little bit? Imagine this. You have a debt of $10 trillion, and I think that's like two Bitcoins right now or something. And like the government, you could never pay off this debt. You couldn't. It's not going to happen. The death of Christ paid the penalty for your sin. That that 
unmeasurable debt that you have, Christ paid it on your behalf. You have a clean slate because Christ died, literally, physically. But you, you know what? You know what's amazing, even more amazing than that? It's not just that our debt was cleared, but the resurrection of Christ, his conquering of sin and death, as we cling to it, as we believe in it, God credits to our account Jesus' righteous life. It's like wiping the 10 billion clear, no debt. And then inserted into your account is billions and trillions, this unimaginable number. That is what the righteousness of Christ is. His righteousness, his credit, his life being credited to your account. That's the gospel. We are declared righteous, brothers and sisters. When God looks at you, he doesn't look at your righteousness. He looks at the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. So when we pray, whose name do we pray in? Yeah, Jesus. Good Sunday school answer. Do we tell the Father, God, I come to you in my own name. I come to you in my own work. I come to you in my own righteousness. No, no. We pray in Jesus' name. We pray covered in his righteousness on our behalf. Brother and sister, do you see what this means in James 5? It means, according to James, your prayer in Jesus' name has effect, has power. Or as the King James would say it, it availeth much. That just sounds cooler. Verse 16 doesn't mean that if you want your prayers to be heard and acted upon, well, you better just, you know, obtain a certain level of righteousness. Positionally, objectively, eternally, you, yeah, you, you, your messed up Christian life, you are declared righteous. What confidence that should give us in prayer. So if you're a child, a bored teenager, an imperfect adult, or a lead-foot crazy grandma on the road. You are declared righteous. You have not just access to God in prayer, but you have the confidence that your prayers will do something because you are declared righteous in Christ. And you come in His name. You are a righteous man or woman in Jesus. And your prayers, yeah, those desperate, God help me prayers, your prayers are effective. Well, maybe you doubt that. Maybe James's first century readers doubted that. It just seems too good to be true. And James is kind. He gives us an example of the results of prayer. He's kind of give us an example because we're like, okay, I'm not really there. So you're telling me just because I cling to Jesus, I'm the righteous one in verse 16? Well, he gives us an example. Look at Elijah again in 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, like yours, Christian. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. 
What kinds of effects are there when a righteous person prays? God orchestrating the weather? God hearing the prayers of a man with a nature like ours? Sinful, doubting, fearful, but hopeful? Clinging to the promises of the righteous one? Perhaps it's been a minute or so since you've read or you're just unfamiliar with Elijah in 1 Kings 18 and 19, but here's something to consider. My, my good friend Dan Doriani says this. I mean, he doesn't know we're friends, but... Elijah was a righteous and faithful man, yet he certainly was not a perfect man. At times, he so indulged his fears that he ran away, despaired of life and petitioned God to take him. Still, God heard his prayers, whether for drought or rain. Like us, Elijah served from a position of weakness. He felt the world's powers arrayed against him. He was prone to despair. He was not worthy. He was simply a righteous man who prayed for individuals in his society. We can pray just like Elijah. We may feel weak and lonely. We may feel powers against us in prayer. We admit that we fear those powers. Yet our prayers also declare that the greatest powers are unseen. The power of God to heal. The power of God to work in our life. The power and the effect of our prayers are not manufactured. Hear me. They're not manufactured by your performance in the Christian life. The power and the effect of prayer resides in and is produced from the triune God of the universe. The same God who created the world with a word. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead. The same God who gives people new hearts as they trust in Christ. The same God who answers the desperate, dependent prayers of his humble, imperfect followers. And he gives what's best. He gives more grace. He graciously uses our feeble prayers and works wonders in our hearts and our circumstances. James concludes his letter and his command for us to pray in this way. Look at verse 19 and 20 again. My brothers and sisters, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This could seem a bit disconnected from the prayer we've seen in our passage. But if you think about it for a moment, it does connect. If we are a people who see the need and the effect of prayer, then the natural implication of that is us having a faith that takes action in our relationships. We pray for many who are sick and hurting. We seek to pray and praise God when there's reason to celebrate. We entrust the elders of our local churches to shepherd and pray over those with chronic and severe illness and sickness. 
But the ultimate implication of our praying is not merely physical, but, but most importantly, spiritual. A heart that has been rescued by Christ and a heart that has been shaped by prayer is a heart that takes action and reaches out to those who are wandering. Wandering children. Parents, you worried about your kids? Me too. Kids, you worried about your parents? Yeah. Wandering children, wandering friends, co-workers, neighbors, loved ones. A heart shaped by prayer seeks to be used as God's instrument here on earth (laughs) in the life that you've been given to save souls from emptiness, death, punishment, and an eternity apart from a good and kind Heavenly Father. This passage, brothers and sisters, James 5 lays out the core values of our church at Lakewood. Our mission, what are you doing here this morning? Why do we show up? Our mission is to reproduce faithful followers of Christ. And what is most central, what is most core to us as a church is that we would be faithful followers of life shaped by biblical living. That's what prayer is. It's a a biblical living, a dependence, an asking of God, a following of Him. The core value of biblical living, but but not just biblical living. What's most central to us is that we would have a commitment to relational community. That's in James 5. We're confessing to one another. We're calling on the church when we hurt and when we suffer. We're pulling the body in. But Third, our core values that we'd be compelled to intentional outreach. That's what we see here at the end of James 5. We're compelled. We're compelled to reach and pray for those who are wandering far from God. Faithful followers of Christ, we take action. We are not just hearers of the word. We are doers of the word. So faithful followers of Christ, pray. We pray. Sometimes desperately, impatiently, angrily, imperfectly, inconsistently, selfishly. Faithful followers of Christ pray. And brothers and sisters, this is already true of your life. Did you know that? If you have been given a new heart in Christ, this is already true of your life. (laughs) Could you do it more? Yes. Could you see your need more? Could you boldly ask for the results of your prayer to be more evident? Yes, we could. But God is already producing this in your life. And I think it'd be silly to do anything other right now than to pray that God would help shape these things in us tomorrow morning. You know tomorrow's Monday, right? We need prayer. Pray with me.
Father, we come to you, as James reminded us, not in our righteousness, we come to you in Christ's righteousness, in his name, in his power, in Lord, trusting in your kindness, in your sovereign will for our lives. So would you meet us here and now? Would you give us a tangible, real demonstration by your spirit through your word that you are, in fact, real and powerful? That you do act when you hear our prayers. And Lord, would you give us a deep faith and trust in what you give us? Would we be compelled not just to live biblically and to relate relationally in community, but would you give us uh, just a, a heart that's compelled to reach out to those we love. God, would we fervently pray, not for the rain to come and go, and yeah, perhaps, Lord, the, we, we should pray over those things. But would you give us a heart that desperately prays for people who do not know you? And Lord, sometimes that's us. Sometimes our prayer for ourselves is, Lord, show me you are real. God, show me that I can trust you. God, enliven my heart more and more because I doubt. Would you give us great confidence? Thank you that we can come to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.